Would you please stand as we read Hebrews 6? Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not, lay, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works in a faith toward God, of doctrine of bat- baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrecting the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted good works of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but to but imitate those who who through faith and patience inherit inherit the promises For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. It's good morning, and I know it's a little chilly. The the converse is, is I believe, worse when you're real hot. When it's cold, you know, you can always put more layers on, put a jacket, put a blanket, but being cold helps you stay alert, I think, too. You know, even if you're shivering and moving around. Um, if you need to stand up and move around and do one of these this morning, that's okay. All right, we want you to stay awake and attentive to what God has to say in His Word. Uh, I, I do believe that uh, there's, there, there are many things this morning in the verses we're going to look at. They're going to be helpful for each one of us in terms of taking something and asking ourselves, what's the Lord desiring to teach us? I think one of the things this morning that I'd like to just put before you here now, before we pray, is this word encouragement. For you, for you younger ones especially, uh, in thinking about the text, I'd like you to, to think about that word encouragement. Encouragement. Okay? Um, I was reminded of a song, our younger ones sometimes have, maybe others of you have sung the song, uh, Encourage One Another and Build Each Other Up, remember that song? Uh, that's the uh, Hide em In Your Heart uh, CD I think many of us have grown up with, and uh, I, I was thinking about that song this week as I was reminded of, of some of the text, and I'm excited about the encouragement aspect. Let me ask you a quick question. How many of you in here like to be encouraged? Anybody? Good. The text is relevant. Immediately. Okay? It's immediately relevant. 
Enough said as a precursor. Let's pray, and we're going to dive in. Father, you're righteous in all of your ways. You deal with us in truth. You deal with us in love. You deal with us in mercy and judgment. You are a God of wrath. You are a God of justice. You are also a God of love. You are a holy God. You're a God that knows our hearts. You know everything about us. We're grateful this morning for the comforting presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for his ministry in our lives as followers of Jesus. He's set on pointing us always to Jesus, reminding us of his ministry, his words, his ways, all of which we need. Without his presence working in us, we're left to our own works, our own words, our own ways. Father, I pray this morning that you would set our hearts and minds toward you in these next few moments as we have your word open before us. I pray, Lord, you would teach us, that you would engage us this morning, heart and mind. We would be attentive to hear what you have to say. We'd be reminded that you've created us. So therefore, Lord, I pray we would move in a way that would reflect one created in your image as clay on the potter's wheel. Father, this morning we recognize our need for your refining, your shaping to look more like your son Jesus. And so, Father, we just ask and pray that you would have your own way in us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by just submitting a few examples, illustrations of what I believe the passage, and we'll segue into where this is going in Hebrews 6. By the way, just in terms of where we're going, um, 9, 10, 11, and 12 were too good just to pass by and lump in with 13 through 20. I really wanted to spend, and I was debating, thinking about including 9 through 20, but opted to not rush 9, 10, 11, and 12 because I think there's a strong and much needful word in these few verses. So that's where we're going to be, Lord willing, 9 through 12, primarily this morning. And we'll pick up the remainder of the chapter for next week. You know, I I see uh, all kinds of of temperaments working the game of basketball. You know, as I'm working the game and as I'm an official, every game there are two personalities on the sideline. And it's interesting because every game, there are different personalities on those benches. One coach might be fiery, he might be ramped up. Another guy might be quiet, just doesn't say a whole lot. Every game, on the fly, you're dealing with two temperaments on the sideline. And your job as an official is to immediately, quickly figure out those temperaments so that you know how to best communicate with both of them. And you know, it's interesting as I see these things and see the coaches in particular on the sidelines, I recognize the game is filled with ups and downs and momentum shifts at different points of the game. And players have their good moments and their not so good moments. I've witnessed coaches who call timeouts and they do nothing, by the way, in the game. For those of you that don't know, there's what's called a 30-second timeout and there's a full timeout. The 30-second timeout... Is just what it says it is. They get 30 seconds. And the full timeout is 60 seconds in length, okay? 30-second timeouts and 60-second timeouts. And coaches call timeouts. I've noticed that some spend the majority of that 30 seconds and 60 seconds doing nothing but berating, yelling, barking, pointing out to their players everything they've done wrong. That's the entirety of the timeout. They've done nothing but reinforce the negative. Rehash what has gone wrong. 
And by the time the horn sounds to begin play again and come out of their huddle, not much instruction, not much teaching, not much correction has really happened. You know, as a means of, of sharpening our own craft as an official. Officials oftentimes are, are found attending camps during the off-season. And I happened to be working one of those this past weekend. And it's always interesting to me to see the personalities that make up the clinician. You know what a clinician is, right? A clinician is someone who is helping you. That's the intent, at least. They are to help you. And what I found to be true, and typically see this across the board, there are different personalities for those who are clinicians. The clinician is on the court and he's watching you as an official. We have numbers on our back. We're a number at camp. And we have these two guys that are watching us. And they evaluate us at halftime and after the game we have conversations. And they fill out all these reports and do these different things. But what's interesting and what I found to be true again this weekend. While their job is to try to make you better. To teach. To instruct you in your game as an official. I I witnessed a a wide range of clinician personality. And picked up on a few guys who, who came across with, let's just say, less than average people skills. Can I say it that way? Is that, is that okay to say it that way? Less, they, were, they were below average, had to have been. They spent much of their time pointing out what went wrong on the court and not a whole lot of time instructing how this could have happened differently. How could we have done this differently? There were some great encouragers and some who lacked the ability, lacked any ability, to come alongside and try to encourage. Let me ask you a question. When you're doing a work, job, home, whatever that work may be, you can fill in the blank. And someone comes alongside you, beside you, and does nothing but criticize what you're doing. How does it make you feel? I'm sure there's lots of different answers to that question. I would imagine, though, one common theme and denominator is we don't really care for it too much. When all that happens is criticism. When it's just left hanging, here's what you did wrong. Encouragement just, for some, didn't seem to be in the mix. Barking and correcting and criticizing, but but not encouragement. Or words that provided any kind of hope. And boy, I hope you see where we're going with some of this because the Lord has intended for each one of us in Christ to be encouragers. In fact, it's one of the one another's in the scripture, isn't it? Encourage one another. How are you doing on that one? Are you an encourager? You're sitting in the chair this morning and you're listening. Are you an encourager to one another? Let's begin in your own household. Let's go outside the doors of your home. How well do you do it being an encourager to other people? We move this a little closer to home. Parents, we have several dads and moms here. We have many children. If we polled the cross section of children here, I wonder how many of them have asked, in one word, how might you describe your parents? I wonder if encouragement would make the list. I wonder if it'd be one of those words. While recognizing that biblical discipline is a part of the training process, is there not also a place to be found for encouragement? 
The Bible is profitable for rebuke, right? 2 Timothy 3. It's profitable for rebuke. What else is it profitable for? The Bible tells us it's also profitable for correction. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. It's profitable in so many ways. And I think it's important that we understand that those four ways it's profitable in 2 Timothy 3, because there's more than one way, we ought to make sure we understand there's something else besides rebuke. There's something else besides discipline. We must not leave it hanging that all we do is rebuke. Think about how deflating it is to always be on the receiving end of criticism, harsh words, strong exhortations, warnings, finger pointing. And in the midst of it, seldom if ever a word of encouragement, a word that breathes hope. Do you know how many people today, you've heard the stories, I'm sure, of folks who have done some great things for the Lord. But when you look backward at their life, And you see where they came from. Perhaps their life wasn't a whole lot in terms of upbringing. But there was one person, one person in their life that encouraged them. There was one person in their life who spoke words that built them up, that edified them. And made all the difference in their life. Those kinds of words bring health to the bones, don't they? And that's what the proverb writer says. Encouragement in the original language can mean exhorting, comforting, or encouraging, depending upon the context in which it's found. It's that word that comes from uh, parakletos, paraklete which describes, I believe, the perfect role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. comes from two words, preposition alongside, and then to call. To call alongside, or to come alongside. We think about encouraging someone. You're coming alongside them, as opposed to keeping your distance from them, as opposed to lording it over them. You're coming alongside of them to speak a word, to serve as a comfort, to serve as a help. And those things, are they not words that apply to the Holy Spirit? Helper, comforter, encourager. He does that. Praise God he does that. Perhaps it's good to ask the question, at least be reminded that we ought to be a thankful people for the ministry of the one who comes alongside of us. I think sometimes in our lives, the Holy Spirit, when we start talking about the three persons in one, we, we make a lot of mention about God and we make a lot of mention about Jesus. And I don't know that we make a whole lot of mention about the Holy Spirit, friends. And He is our comforter. He's our encourager. How many of you think about the length to which God goes to get our attention, to awaken us to his ways and to awaken us to his words and his ministry needs that are all around us? I want you to know that the God who breathed these scriptures is a God who desires to discipline us, to sanctify us. There's going to be hard lessons to learn, no doubt about it. There are going to be hard mountains to climb along the way. But it's here that we need to remember what God promises. Listen, if you don't get anything else on this in terms of encouragement, this might be a helpful takeaway right here. Remember these things. These are things in the scripture that God promises. He promises to be with you. God is with you. He promises, and I think we see testimony of this throughout the whole of scripture, God is for you. He's for you. He's not only with you, but he's for you. 
He wants your good. But God isn't just with you and he's not just for you. He's also working in you. He's working in you. See, when trials come and difficulties land in your lap, I think those three things are very significant and important truths for us to hold on to. He's with you. He's for you. And he's working in you, assuming that you are a follower of Jesus. Even if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, know that he is still working on you. See, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin. He's still at work on you, hoping that you have ears to hear, that you will finally turn, that you will repent from your sin, your old way of living, that you will turn in faith to God and trust him with your life and live a life that is in alignment with repentance. That's what Paul says. He says that was his card, those three things, wherever he went. In the Mediterranean, he was preaching and teaching those three things. Repent from your sin. Turn to God in faith. And do works befitting repentance. Simple. Simple. Yet how many of us practice those? Holding fast to these truths encourages you to forge ahead in the faith to not lose heart to not quit to not try something else to not look for quick fixes see God is with you he's not leaving you when times get tough I will never leave you nor forsake you that's a promise it's a wonderful promise Jesus says I will be with you until when until times get hard and then you're on your own No, he says, I'll be with you until the end of the age. It's part of that great commissioning statement in Matthew 28. He's for you. He desires your good. He desires your growth. He desires to see you bear fruit so that you would show yourself to be like a disciple of his. And he's working in you. He's sanctifying you. He's transforming desires to transform your mind, your heart, in word, in deed, into the very image of his son. So he's with you. He's for you. He's working in you. And all this segues, segues right into where we're at here in Hebrews 6. We're another hinge point in the text. Turning the corner from 8 to 9 in chapter 6. Hebrews 5, verse 11, through what we covered last week, through verse 8. How many of you know there's been some hard words in the last few weeks? Huh? Been some hard words. Writer has some difficult things to say. But praise God, he just doesn't have hard things to say and just leave them there. God's word doesn't do that to us. And what we're going to see is something on the other side of the exhortation and the rebuke and the warning. You know, the letter as a whole is is written to Jewish Christians, some of whom are followers of Jesus, some of whom are not, some of whom are right on the verge, they're right on the verge of receiving and believing this Christ as Messiah. But we also got to remember and keep in perspective the context These are perilous times of persecution coupled with traditional Judaism pull, a a traditional Judaism mindset. And so many of the recipients are struggling. They're struggling. There's this tension of what to do, where to go. Do I turn here or do I turn here? And one of the common themes over the past several verses has been growth or lack thereof. And the text has pointed to the grave danger, listen, in not progressing in the faith. Of failing to receive the opportunities for salvation that have been available. Listen, failing to receive the opportunities... 
You know, you've heard that story. I'm sure many times it's probably been told in a lot of different ways about the guy. There's a storm, there's a flood, and he's on the, on the rooftop, and, and like two or three different people come, and, and they try and help the guy. Remember the story? And he, and he turns all of them down and says he's waiting on God. He's waiting on God. Well, can't God orchestrate someone to come alongside and help you? And here's this guy holding on to hope that some, somehow God's just going to zap him out of his situation. When the reality is he keeps providing opportunity and opportunity and opportunity for rescue. To get off of the roof. To get out of danger. And church, he does that with us all the time. He provides us with opportunities. But that's what I believe Hebrew writer comes back to time and time again. Saying the importance of today. Today, do not harden your hearts. Opportunity. The opportunity's here, he says. Exhortation and warning have lined the way over the past section of Scripture. Much needed words, in fact. Rebuke is profitable. Can I get an amen to that? Rebuke is profitable. I know even as I say it, none of us in here like it. This is the way we're wired. We don't like it. But I do pray we would receive it when it comes from the Lord. Because we, we got to know that when the Lord is rebuking his children, Hebrews 12, we haven't gotten there yet. He does so as a father does with his son. And however good the father's intentions are in doing it with a son or daughter, we know that God's intentions are far greater that we might partake in his holiness and be holy like he's holy. I'm grateful that God's word doesn't just lay the hammer down on us and rebuke us and then walk away, leaving us on our own to figure this whole thing out. Praise God, it doesn't work that way. He oftentimes follows rebuke with correction. He says, in effect, he says, stop what you are doing. Listen, when the Bible talks about something and he's rebuking, oftentimes when there's a rebuke, we can back up and we can understand that the rebuke is there because they've been doing something contrary to what he wants them to do. It's just like a warning. We talked about a warning in the text. The warning in the text wouldn't be there if these things weren't happening. A lot of times it's stop doing what you're doing. But then he follows that up. And he says, let me show you the right way. Let me show you the right path. Let me show you the right course of navigation. And once he corrects you from the word, there's a training course he takes us on. It's a lifelong course of instruction in his ways of righteousness. We don't learn these things overnight. (laughs) We live in a quick fix culture, don't we? We want an answer right now. We want a fix right now. His sanctifying work in us continues. It keeps going. It keeps going. All the way to the end, as long as we have these earthen tents. Don't short circuit what he wants to do in you. We've been called to work out the salvation that he's given to us. And we work as he is working in us. We labor and minister as we look to Jesus. Serving the body of Christ. Serving the world around us. Shining, as Paul says in Philippians, shining forth as stars in the midst of a what? A perverse and a wicked generation. How many of you know that's the generation we live in? Any of you seen any signs of that lately? Yeah. It's called you to be a star, shining, a shining star. Last week's text was hard. It's heavy in many regards. I see verses 9 through 12 serving as an encouragement, breathing hope and life into both followers and those wavering recipients alike. (laughs) 
So under the banner of encouragement this morning, the writer voices in verse 9. Your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. Your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. Let me read the verse. Begins with but. But, beloved, beloved, term of endearment, loved ones. Uh, This term of endearment would have been to express something to another brother and sister in the Lord. But, there's a contrast word. He's been talking, we talked the last week or two, about primarily his address to some of the unbelievers in their midst. But beloved, that's how he begins, loved ones. There's a term of endearment here. I believe this is one of the only times, if the only time, this, this word's used in the, in the whole book. But beloved, we are confident, assured of better things. Literal rending is the better things, which leads us to ask a question, what better things are we talking about? We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. Though we speak in what manner? Remember what he's just been talking about. Exhortation, warning, danger. Though we've had to speak some hard things. Beloved, I'm confident, he says. I'm confident. And as we'll read in verse 9, hopefully another question comes to your attention. How is the writer confident? He's going to come and address that here shortly. But for now, for now we see in verse 9, the life of a Christian. Your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. When you think about accompany. A company, one of the first things that came to my attention was piano. Well, on a Sunday morning, we're singing songs of worship, and we are doing so accompanied with piano, right? It could be any instrument. We just happen to have piano, accompanied with piano. What would happen if we were singing, and all of a sudden, the piano was playing a different song? We, we, we sort of laugh, we sort of chuckle, especially some that are playing the piano, get a, get a little laugh out of that. But really, what would happen? It would be a little disjointed, wouldn't it? Singing, trying to sing a song that we're looking at, and the accompaniment doesn't match what we're singing. It'd be kind of strange, wouldn't it? Probably wouldn't get too far in the song. It'd probably be really hard to listen to. It'd be hard to sing, too, truth be told. There's a, there's a disjointed, disconnected accompaniment going on. And, and I want to take that illustration and apply it to our lives for just a moment. How often in our lives do we profess to be a follower? I much prefer to use the word follower than believer. Uh, because I'm always reminded when I say believe, I'm always reminded of that passage in James that says that even the demons believe. So I like, I, like the, I like the word follower in my mind. It's just follower, I'm, I'm moving where he's, where he's going, leading me. Following, I'm following. So there are those who profess to be a follower. And then there's the life of a follower. Tell me, does your life accompany the very thing that's intended when we talk about salvation. You know, I think that when verse 9 happens here and and he's encouraging them, your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. A saved life. We're confident of the better things. You know, he's been talking here in in verses, go back to the end of chapter 5. By this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. If you're one of those milk-only dieters, and you've not made any progress, 
I was listening to a message this week, and he posed a question this week. We've got to really come to some understanding. If, if we've not progressed in the faith from this time last year to where we are today, what are we doing? What are we really proclaiming? Sort of like the piano that's playing a different tune while we're singing. Our lives are that tune. It's out, it's out of tune with who we're supposed to be as a Christian. These things that are intended to accompany salvation. Which we see here in chapter 6, the beginning. Things that he's pointing out, things in the Old Testament. Things that, that they used to be doing. Let us go, let's not lay this foundation again. Let's, let's cut the ties with this old way of living. And let's move forward. Let's make progress in the faith. Faith based and grounded and rooted in Christ. Your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. Our lives ought to look and sound and smell. When someone gets around you, I love the scene and facing the giants. Remember the scene? There's an attitude in the group. Remember? Remember Brock? Have you seen that? He already thinks they've lost the game. Assistant coach comes up. can tell he's got a heart problem. He's got a heart problem. And I think that some of us in our lives, we don't understand, we don't see the need, the necessity to press forward in this, what we're talking about, that our life as a Christian, some of us are so comfortable in being a Christian that we've lost sight of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. Friends, I want to encourage you in that this morning, that our lives play the accompaniment of that which the word says is the way of salvation. What is that way of salvation? I believe verse 9 segues nicely. He says, let me encourage you to know. He keeps going with this. I just want to encourage you. Verse 10, look, he says, for God... For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. There is your work and labor of love, which you have shown, I love this part right here, toward his name. In that, now he's going to unpack how this happens, this work and labor of love. In that you have ministered to the saints. Notice the tense. You have ministered to the saints. And, notice the tense, do minister. You have and you do. So your life as a Christian accompanies a saved life. Here we see in verse 10, your ministry as a Christian does not go unnoticed by God. Your ministry as a Christian does not go unnoticed by God. A few passages of scripture. Second Timothy is one that comes to mind. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You therefore, Paul writing to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Closely connected to that, I'd like to pull in one that probably, I would imagine, has come to your attention and your mind as you're reading this. And it's at the end of Paul's letter to Corinth in chapter 15. At the end of that wonderful resurrection chapter, chapter 15... He says in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. Listen to verse 58, the last verse of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because it's God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the what? In the work of the Lord. Keep on going. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what? That your labor is not in vain 
in the Lord. It's not empty. It's not shallow. It's not going to return to him void. Your work, your labor for him. That's encouraging. Because as some of you may know, ministry can be hard. Ministry can be difficult. But when we have the perspective and we back up and we, we're able to see that, that your, the ministry as a Christian does not go unnoticed by God. Friends, that's so comforting. And, and the book of Hebrews, doesn't it, point us? It's always pointing and projecting to future. It's always having us look ahead and not get so bogged down in right here and now. And yet at the same time, it calls us to live right here and now with diligence. We'll see this in a moment. Pressing on so that we can get the prize. Your ministry as a Christian does not notice God. Listen, I want to say one other thing about this. Sometimes your ministry seems to be pushed aside by other people. Maybe you have served and ministered someone in the past. And maybe that person or persons have not been grateful or thankful for your ministry. And maybe it's caused you to back away from ministry because you've been hurt. You know, there are so many people who get hurt through ministering to others within the body. I want to encourage you this morning from the word and help you understand. I want you to see. That your ministry in the Lord is first and foremost. It says there in verse 10. We need to keep this perspective, friends. God's not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. I want to ask you this morning, as you minister as a follower of Jesus, are you ministering in such a way that it is primarily, first and foremost, toward his name? Are you doing it for the sake of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because listen, if you're doing it for any other reason, if you're doing it to get a, a oh, good job, good job, oh, oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, you know what that does to us? It's not healthy. And it sure isn't the reason we are in t- or supposed to be serving. We serve toward his name. We're here, friends, to give him glory, aren't we? That's our primary from being here. And so when we serve others in the body, when we serve those outside these walls, that's another issue as well. We're not just to serve the people inside the body. Yes, we are to serve. Galatians chapter 5 says that we're not to be weary in doing good. We're to be mindful of serving all, especially the household of faith, right? Especially. Emphasis in the body, but not exclusively in the body. Make sure that our service and our ministry is first shown toward his name. And notice again the past and the present. He's pointing out this is what they've done. They've ministered to the saints And they do minister to the saints. I believe one other thing he says here, and this is 11 and 12. He says, let me encourage you one other way. Not only is your life as a Christian, not only does it accompany a saved life, not only does what gets played out in your life line up with who you say you are as a follower of Jesus, Not only does your ministry as a Christian go unnoticed by God. He takes notes of it. Absolutely he does. He's watching. He knows your heart. But I believe third, your diligence as a Christian. Your diligence as a Christian is expected all the way to the end. Listen, this isn't a new theme in Hebrews, is it? All the way to the end. It's like the Hebrew writer is just hammering, hammering, hammering. Go all the way to the finish line. 
Some of you in here have run races. You have this visual image of what I'm talking about. When you go and you see the finish line and you see the tape, it makes you want to just go and run all the way through it. Stretch out all the way to the finish line. That's the picture. That's the image. All the way to the finish line. Your diligence as a Christian is, listen, it's expected all the way to the end. Not an option. It's expected. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's expected that you will go all the way with all your might to the end. I love what it says. Let's look at 11 and 12. And we desire, we desire that, here's a phrase here you might want to mark, that each one of you, each one of you, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. We desire that each one of you Show the same, the same diligence to the full assurance of hope. Here's that phrase, until the end. And it seems like we have a purpose statement here in verse 12. It continues the thought. That you do not become sluggish. That word sluggish, if you go backwards in the text to chapter 5 verse 11, the same word for sluggish here. In 6.12 is the same word in 5.11 that's used for dull. Translated differently in the English text. Same word though, in the original. Same word. That you do not become sluggish or dull, but imitate those who through faith and patience or those who through faithful perseverance is another rendering. Inherit the promises. Your diligence as a Christian is expected all the way to the end. Each one of you. Each one of you. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. You know, I was reading this and I was just reminded. One of the things that really grates me, maybe it grates you too. So maybe we can collaborate in our grading this morning. You've heard of the expression, the 80-20 principle, right? 20-80 principle, it's kind of used back and forth. Essentially in ministry circles, it it goes something like this, that there's there's this assumption that's put out there that in in all of the churches, there are going to be 20% of the people doing 80% of the work in the body. 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Maybe that's true in your business, where 20% of the people are doing 80% of your work. Maybe it's true in a group project. How many of you have been on a group project where that seemed like that's been the case? Where you're working, and man, you know, there's four of you in the group, and only one of us seems to be working. That's 25%. I'll give 25%. Give a little bit more. 25% principle. And the other 75 are, are slacking. I don't subscribe and I don't believe the Bible subscribes to a 20-80-20 principle. I don't believe that. And I, and I see here, right here, this is phrase. We desire that each one of you, each one of you, writing to the whole of the church, speaking to us, the whole of the church, each one of you, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. So are there different levels of diligence? It's sort of like when Paul writes in Corinthians 3 about the carnal man. There are some people who think that Paul's writing there about a third kind of person. That you can be carnal, you can be natural man, you can be spiritual man. I don't believe for a moment Paul is advocating a third kind of person. Paul is simply pointing out what is wrong. Some of you are acting like a worldly person. Stop it. It ought not be so. Your life is being played out. It's, it's the accompaniment that I'm hearing, Paul says, isn't lining up with who you're supposed to be as a Christian. In the same way, we have this word here from the writer, moved by the Spirit, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. The same diligence. Diligence, this striving, this pressing on. It has that image in mind of crossing the tape. Diligence. Let me ask you this morning, are you diligent? 
Have you been diligent in your walk relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or would you say that your relationship with him this morning has been somewhat less than diligent? You see, the writer here is calling us all. This is not an option, friends. It's expected all the way to the finish line. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of hope. Hope that is seen is not hope, says elsewhere. Why does one still hope for what he sees? Romans 5, 5 talks about the love of God has been poured out on our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope, hope. We have hope because we have the Spirit in us. We have hope. Hope is looking and projecting toward what's yet to come. The full assurance of hope. One day, one day we're going to get to see Jesus. How many of you are excited about that one? You get to see Jesus. That ought, listen, that ought to encourage us to walk with him every day, all the day, all the way to the end, knowing that that is what is yet to come. Showing the same diligence. Listen, how is it possible that each one of you show the same diligence? You might be sitting here and going, well, there's no way, Steve, that each one of us in here can show the same diligence. Okay, let me give you something we've already talked about from the scripture. This, is, this, this right here, I believe, is in place and needful. And chapter 3, if you back up to chapter 3 where we've been, this is why chapter 3 verse 13 becomes so important. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Lest any of you run like you've got ankles on your weights and balls and chain, and you're not able to run the race. You're not able to fix your eyes because you're so worried about all these other things. You're entangled in your sin. We, listen, we need each other in order to show the same diligence. I believe 3.13 is a great compliment to what we're reading here today. In chapter 6, verse 11. Showing the same diligence. How long? Until the end. How long do we keep doing this? Until the end. How long do we have to keep going through hard stuff in this life? Trials that come. How long? Till the end. Until the end. Well, what's the purpose behind this diligence to the end? I believe that the scripture gives us a twofold answer. Hang in here, we're about done. The first part of the answer is that you do not become sluggish, verse 12, or dull. But, here again, he gives us, he gives us a, a positive side of looking at it, that you don't become sluggish like some. Who right now, that's the way they're living their lives. The writer had just said last week that you don't become sluggish, but that you imitate, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want you to see that there's something on the back end for laboring diligently in the Lord. And friends, you see it in part now, but then it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Can you imagine? I love the song. Remember that song? By Mercy Me. I can only imagine. I can only imagine what it'll be like. And it's, it's a song that's talking about what it's going to be like when, when you're in heaven, when you're with Jesus, and you're going to be able to see all these things. You're going to be able to experience these things. What it'll be like to receive the crown of life. Have you ever thought about that? James 1.12, blessed is the man who receives the crown of life. For when he has what? Endured. When he's endured. When he's come all the way to the end. Are you going to endure? Are you going to keep on ministering? And as you minister, recognizing that all of your ministry must be toward his name. Because if it's for man, you're going to get exhausted in the race. You're going to be ready to throw in the towel. You're going to be ready to quit. But if it's for him, we come to understand the full assurance of hope set before us, don't we? And we keep going. 
And it's hard. It might be hard, but we keep going. And listen, we keep going not in our own strength, but remember, if we are a follower of Jesus, who do we have helping us, coming alongside of us, friends? Who is it? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's coming alongside of us, and he's running the race with us. He's pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to his words. He's encouraging us along the way. There's something on the back end of the laboring in the Lord. Have you thought much lately about what it would be like to see Jesus and to experience heaven, to be surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses? We're not there yet, but it's coming. Hebrews chapter 12. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning to press on, to persevere all the way to the end. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is where I want to end. It's a matter of application. Some of you children in here. Many of your families, if not all the families in here, have siblings, brothers, sisters, young, old, Those of you who are older, here's a word. There ought to be a desire, just like Paul says to Timothy, be an example to the believers, right? Timothy 4, 12, be an example. I want you to understand, you ought to be someone that your younger siblings can look to to imitate here on earth. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm, a, you know, I'm only eight, I'm only nine, I'm only 12, I'm only 13. If that's your thought, I want you to know that you are discounting what God wants to do in and through you because he's placed you in your home to actually walk in the truth of what he's given to you from his word. He's called you to be diligent now as an eight-year-old. Remember, we were listening this week to Josiah. And reading about his life. Young people, do you know when he became king? Eight. Eight years old. He became king. And the Bible says specifically that he began seeking the Lord. That's the term. He began seeking the Lord at the age of 16. Now that doesn't mean you have to wait if you're eight. You have to wait till you're 16 to start seeking him. I'm making the point to say God used Use that young man, Josiah. And I believe he can use every single one of you in your homes. We think about imitating someone. I want you to think about what it is to imitate a godly example versus imitating an ungodly example. Older siblings, be Jesus to your younger siblings. Show them what it is to walk like Jesus would walk. 1 John 2, 6. Do it the best that you can do it at the age that you're at. Do it the best that you can do it with the light that God's given to you to walk in. And you can say, just as Paul says a couple times in scriptures, Paul says, imitate me as I will imitate Christ. So, younger siblings, as you are imitating what I'm doing, know that really what I'm desiring is to point you, not to me. I'm desiring to point you to Jesus. Dads and moms, I pray that it would be our heart's desire to have our children imitate us. And some of us are sitting in chairs right now and going, and we're thinking, our minds zooming, mile a minute, thinking about all the things that we've done wrong, all the things that we just didn't get right, all the things that we just messed up on. We just, we failed in this, 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 and our mind just starts zipping. But listen, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The Lord that we serve is a gracious, loving, compassionate, God, who has forgiven us our sins. In fact, he went to such an extreme in sending his son to die on the cross. He showed, that, he showed how important his forgiveness was by sending his son, and son died on the cross. 
If he was willing to do that, friends, I do believe he's willing to also forgive any of the shortcomings we've had as parents. That being said, I want to encourage dads and moms to live lives that are not going to be disjointed thinking of the accompaniment. We need to have dads and moms in this place that are not going to just talk a good talk. Dads and moms that aren't just going to bring their children into a Sunday morning worship service just because it's the right thing to do. You hear, you hear parents who all of a sudden want to bring their children into the way. The children come on the scene and now they say it's time to start going to church. Listen, we don't need church attendance. We need people living out a relationship with Jesus Christ. Imitate me, dad. Imitate me, mom. That's what we ought to be saying to our children. And our children ought to be able to see in dad a man who's strong in the word, a man who is faithful. Our children ought to be able to see a mom who is walking with the Lord, a mom who loves the Lord with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as we call them to imitate us, we know that we're not calling them because of our perfection. We're far from it. But we're calling them to imitate us as we are striving with all diligence to run to the end. And it's our desire that our children would do the same. I was thinking about this call to imitate. And friends, I want to leave you with this. There's no one greater on, on this earth. In fact, I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Who have, whom have I in heaven? Whom have I in heaven? There's none upon earth that I desire besides whom? You. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Friends, if we leave here and we don't get anything else, I pray we would hear this. One of the greatest encouragements we can have and know from the scripture is that when the word calls us to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ, be imitators of Christ. You know, this world that we live in, this world that we live in, friends, is looking, is searching for a hero, searching for someone that's going to build them up, someone that's going to give them uh, this confidence, give them this assurance, going to make them feel okay. And we're looking for these things in all of the wrong places. False security, false hope. I want to tell you this morning from God's word, We're not to be sluggish, we're not to be dull, but we're to imitate not only those here who are practicing faith and patience and who inherit the promises, but ultimately, friends, we need to be about imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. Imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? What's that look like? Open the word and get in his word. You want to know what Jesus did? Open the word. You want to know how he lived his life? Open the word. Think about how odd it would be to run a race with all diligence, pressing on to the finish line, and not really caring a whole lot about this one that you're imitating Jesus. That seems to me a disjointed accompaniment. You see, it's only when we are about imitating Jesus... And understanding this full hope that we have available to us. Only then are we going to be inclined to go and to move with all diligence. Because it's going to mean something to us. Because it's Jesus. He's going to give us. As he moves on in verses 13 through 20, he's going to provide an example of one that his listener could imitate. One they would have been very familiar with, Father Abraham. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 13. For today, I pray that this word has been an encouragement. Because I do believe that these verses are here to encourage our soul. To help us move forward. To help us understand our life as a Christian ought to reflect a saved life. It ought to line up. 
our ministry as a Christian. Our ministry as a Christian ought to, as it says in verse 10, ought to be done in his name, first and foremost. And then lastly, our diligence as a Christian. It ought not be sluggish, but it ought to imitate, ultimately, it ought to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. And know that as it imitates Christ, it's going to probably do exactly some of the things that Ralph talked about during Lord's Supper time. Imitating Christ's life is going to include some times of suffering, isn't it? It's going to include some times of persecution. Are you still going to be willing to imitate him? Be encouraged, friends. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, that you breathe life into us through your living word. And Father, I pray this morning that those who are here who have heard your word, Father, I pray that your spirit would just even now be applying these truths, be applying these verses that we have before us. Lord, I pray that as we leave here, Lord, your word would just continue to, to apply, be, be applied to their minds, to their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would transform them, change them as a result of hearing your word today. That all of us together would exhibit the same diligence. Because all of us here who profess to be followers of Jesus, we are all connected to one another and we are connected to the same head, Christ. Therefore, I pray we would have the same mind. We would have the same diligence. We would have the same purpose to press on and run the race set before us that we might each one win the prize. And what a prize it is. So Lord, as we continue living in this earthen tent, may we not get caught up in the temporal, but Lord, may we always have an eye fixed toward that heavenly city as we await the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, I pray that we would set aside ungodly living, set aside unrighteousness, and that instead we would live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, shining like stars, breathing encouragement to others wherever we go. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.